Section 12. The Critique of Pure Reason by Immanuel Kant. Transcendental Doctrine of Elements. Part 2nd. Transcendental Logic. First Division. Transcendental Analytic. Book 2. Transcendental Doctrine of the Faculty of Judgment, or Analytic of Principles. Chapter 2. System of All Principles of the Pure Understanding. Sections 1 and 2. Recorded by Kirsten Ferreri. In the foregoing chapter we have merely considered the general conditions under which alone the transcendental faculty of judgment is justified in using the pure conceptions of the understanding for synthetical judgments. Our duty at present is to exhibit in systematic connection those judgments which the understanding really produces a priori. For this purpose, our table of the categories will certainly afford us the natural and safe guidance, for it is precisely the categories whose application to possible experience must constitute all pure a priori cognition of the understanding, and the relation of which to sensibility will, on that very account, present us with a complete and systematic catalogue of all the transcendental principles of the use of the understanding. Principles a priori are so called, not merely because they contain in themselves the grounds of other judgments, but also because they themselves are not grounded in higher and more general cognitions. This peculiarity, however, does not raise them altogether above the need of a proof. For although there could be found no higher cognition, and therefore no objective proof, and although such a principle rather serves as the foundation for all cognition of the object, this by no means hinders us from drawing a proof from the subjective sources of the possibility of the cognition of an object. Such a proof is necessary, moreover, because without it the principle might be liable to the imputation of being a mere gratuitous assertion. In the second place, we shall limit our investigations to those principles which relate to the categories. For as to the principles of transcendental aesthetic, according to which space and time are the conditions of the possibility of things as phenomena, as also the restriction of these principles, namely, that they cannot be applied to objects as things in themselves, these, of course, do not fall within the scope of our present inquiry. In like manner, the principles of mathematical science form no part of this system, because they are all drawn from intuition, and not from the pure conception of the understanding. The possibility of these principles, however, will necessarily be considered here, inasmuch as they are synthetical judgments a priori, not indeed for the purpose of proving their accuracy and apodeictic certainty, which is unnecessary, but merely to render conceivable and deduce the possibility of such evident a priori cognitions. But we shall have also to speak of the principle of analytical judgments, in opposition to synthetical judgments, which is the proper subject of our enquiries, because this very opposition will free the theory of the latter from all ambiguity, and place it clearly before our eyes in its true nature. System of the Principles of the Pure Understanding, Section 1, of the Supreme Principle of All Analytical Judgments. Whatever may be the content of our cognition, and in whatever manner our cognition may be related to its object, the universal, although only negative conditions of all our judgments, is that they do not contradict themselves. Otherwise these judgments are in themselves, even without respect to the object, nothing. 
but although there may exist no contradiction in our judgment, it may nevertheless connect conceptions in such a manner that they do not correspond to the object, or without any grounds either a priori or a posteriori, for arriving at such a judgment. And thus, without being self-contradictory, a judgment may nevertheless be either false or groundless. Now the proposition, no subject can have a predicate that contradicts it, is called the principle of contradiction, and is a universal but purely negative criterion of all truth. But it belongs to logic alone, because it is valid of cognitions merely as cognitions, and without respect to their content, and declares that the contradiction entirely nullifies them. We can also, however, make a positive use of this principle, that is, not merely to banish falsehood and error, in so far as it rests upon contradiction, but also for the cognition of truth. For if the judgment is analytical, be it affirmative or negative, its truth must always be recognizable by means of the principle of contradiction. For the contrary of that which lies and is cogitated as conception in the cognition of the object will be always properly negatived, but the conception itself must always be affirmed of the object, inasmuch as the contrary thereof would be in contradiction to the object. We must therefore hold the principle of contradiction to be the universal and fully sufficient principle of all analytical cognition. But as a sufficient criterion of truth, it has no further utility or authority. For the fact that no cognition can be at variance with this principle without nullifying itself constitutes this principle the sine qua non, but not the determining ground, of the truth of our cognition. As our business at the present is properly with the synthetical part of our knowledge only, we shall be always on our guard not to transgress this inviolable principle, but at the same time not to expect from it any direct assistance in the establishment of the truth of any synthetical proposition. There exists, however, a formula of this celebrated principle, a principle merely formal and entirely without content, which contains a synthesis that has been inadvertently, and quite unnecessarily, mixed up with it. It is this. It is impossible for a thing to be and not to be at the same time. Not to mention the superfluousness of the addition of the word impossible to indicate the apodictic certainty, which ought to be self-evident from the proposition itself, the proposition is affected by the condition of the time. The proposition is affected by the condition of time, and as it were says, a thing equals A, which is something equals B, cannot at the same time be non-B. But both, B as well as non-B, may quite well exist in succession. For example, a man who is young cannot at the same time be old, but the same man can very well be at one time young and another not young, that is, old. Now the principle of contradiction as a merely logical proposition must not by any means limit its application merely to relations of time, and consequently a formula like the preceding is quite foreign to its true purpose. The misunderstanding arises in this way. We first of all separate a predicate of a thing from the conception of the thing, and afterwards connect with this predicate its opposite, and hence do not establish any contradiction with the subject, but only with its predicate which has been conjoined with the subject synthetically. A contradiction, moreover, which obtains only when the first and second predicate are affirmed in the same time. If I say, a man who is ignorant is not learned, the condition at the same time must be added, for he who is at one time ignorant may at another be learned. But if I say, no ignorant man is a learned man, 
the proposition is analytical, because the characteristic ignorance is now a constituent part of the conception of the subject, and in this case the negative proposition is evident immediately from the proposition of contradiction, without the necessity of adding the condition, the same time. This is the reason why I have altered the formula of this principle, an alteration which shows very clearly the nature of an analytical proposition. Section 2. Of the Supreme Principle of All Synthetical Judgments. The explanation of the possibility of synthetical judgments is a task with which general logic has nothing to do. Indeed, she needs not even be acquainted with its name. But in transcendental logic it is the most important matter to be dealt with, indeed the only one, if the question is of the possibility of synthetical judgments a priori, the conditions and extent of their validity. For when this question is fully decided, it can reach its aim with perfect ease, the determination to wit, of the extent and limits of the pure understanding. In an analytical judgment I do not go beyond the given conception, in order to arrive at some decision respecting it. If the judgment is affirmative, I predicate of the conception only that which was already cogitated in it. If negative, I merely exclude from the conception its contrary. But in synthetical judgments I must go beyond the given conception, in order to cogitate, in relation with it, something quite different from that which was cogitated in it a relation which is consequently never one either of identity or contradiction, and by means of which the truth or error of the judgment cannot be discerned merely from the judgment itself. Granted, then, that we must go out beyond a given conception, in order to compare it synthetically with another, a third thing is necessary, in which alone the synthesis of two conceptions can originate. Now what is this tertium quid that is to be the medium of all synthetical judgments? It is only a complex, in which all our representations are contained, the internal sense to it, and its form a priori, time. The synthesis of our representations rests upon the imagination. Their synthetical unity, which is requisite to a judgment, upon the unity of apperception. In this, therefore, is to be sought the possibility of synthetical judgments, and as all three contain the sources of a priori representations, the possibility of pure synthetical judgments also. Nay, they are necessary upon these grounds, if we are to possess a knowledge of objects, which rests solely upon the synthesis of representations. If a cognition is to have objective reality, that is, to relate to an object and possess sense and meaning in respect to it, it is necessary that the object be given in some way or another. Without this, our conceptions are empty, and we may indeed have thought by means of them, but by such thinking we have not in fact cognized anything, we have merely played with representation. To give an object, if this expression be understood in the sense of to present the object, not immediately, but immediately an intuition, means nothing else than to apply the representation of it to experience, be that experience real or only possible. Space and time themselves, pure as these conceptions are from all that is empirical, and certain as it is that they are represented fully a priori in the mind, would be completely without objective validity, and without sense and significance, if their necessary use in the objects of experience were not shown. Nay, the representation of them is a mere schema, that always relates to the reproductive imagination, which calls up the objects of experience, without which they have no meaning. 
and so it is with all conceptions without distinction. The possibility of experience is, then, that which gives objective reality to all of our a priori cognitions. Now experience depends upon the synthetical unity of phenomena, that is, upon a synthesis according to conceptions of the object of phenomena in general, a synthesis without which experience never could become knowledge, but would be merely a rhapsody of perceptions, never fitting together into any connected text, according to the rules of a thoroughly united possible consciousness, and therefore never subjected to the transcendental and necessary unity of apperception. Experience has therefore for a foundation a priori principles of its form, that is to say, general rules of unity in the synthesis of phenomena, the objective reality of which rules, as necessary conditions even of the possibility of experience can which rules, as necessary conditions. Even the possibility of experience can always be shown in experience. But apart from this relation, a priori synthetical propositions are absolutely impossible, because they have no third term that is, no pure object, in which the synthetical unity can exhibit the objective reality of its conceptions. Although, then, respecting space, or the forms which productive imagination describes therein, we do cognize much a priori in synthetical judgments, and are really in no need of experience for this purpose, such knowledge would nevertheless amount to nothing but a busy trifling with a mere chimera, were not space to be considered as the condition of the phenomena which constitute the material of external experience. Hence those pure synthetical judgments do relate, though but mediately, to possible experience, or rather to the possibility of experience, and upon that alone is founded the objective validity of their synthesis. While then, on the one hand, experience, as empirical synthesis, is the only possible mode of cognition which gives reality to all other synthesis, on the other hand, this latter synthesis, as cognition a priori, possesses truth, that is, accordance with its object, only in so far as it contains nothing more than what is necessary to the synthetical unity of experience. Accordingly, the supreme principle of all synthetical judgments is, every object is subject to the necessary conditions of the synthetical unity of the manifold of intuition in a possible experience. A priori synthetical judgments are possible when we apply the formal conditions of the a priori intuition, the synthesis of the imagination, and the necessary unity of that synthesis in a transcendental apperception, to a possible cognition of experience, and say, the conditions of the possibility of experience in general, are at the same time conditions of the possibility of the objects of experience, and have for that reason objective validity in an a priori synthetical judgment. End of section 12